He said, to the extent I desire to move through you, you must allow me to cut on you. The Leader's Cut. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Leader's Cut. I so enjoy our time together. I'm like Mr. Rogers a little bit. I just love sitting with you. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. It doesn't matter what time you're watching this. Uh, it doesn't matter how many uh, times you have to hit pause and come back to it. I just love sitting in a conversation with you, with the Lord. Uh, it's just one of my favorite things. And I don't take it for granted. And I'm so grateful for all the love. Uh, it's funny. I can actually tell a little bit. Since I said in an episode, um, I, I was just hearing that, that voice. Uh, what if I run out of things to say? Some of you so sweetly commented, DM'd. Uh, but I can also tell uh, some of you are praying. <laughs> because... <laughs> As I was preparing for this episode of putting uh, the notes together, uh, it got hot fast. And so I, I know that's uh, because of God, but also because of your prayer. So I just, I love you so much and I'm so grateful for you. Uh, and I, I just want to honor our time together. Let's pray uh, because we're dealing with something that's a little on the heavier and more difficult side today. Uh, Guaranteed, if uh, I'll say it like this, to the extent your heart is open and desiring to be near to God is the extent to which you're going to be cut on today. I believe this. All right. So let me pray uh, and, and invite the surgeon of heaven to come and cut on our flesh. Spirit of the living God, run rampant. I, I don't just pray that you would come, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would run rampant in our lives and in this time, right here, right now, something beautiful is coming. Something difficult is coming. Something wonderful is on its way. But we must purify ourselves before it comes. So God, I pray that right now by your spirit, wherever they are, I pray you would enter their space and you would tangibly, literally and tangibly fall. That right now they would experience the tangible presence of God right there in that room, right there in that car. Wherever they are, you are. And with all of my heart, I believe you really want to address this. Because what happens next cannot happen until this happens first. So Holy Spirit, we yield ourselves to you. Cut on us. Cut off every part of our flesh that's getting in the way of your spirit. Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, I want to kind of give you a little bit of background of where this burden and where this uh, message came from. Uh, years ago, I, um, when I was growing up, I never had cavities. Okay, let me start it like that. Then years ago, I started to have some trouble with my teeth and uh, went to a dentist 
and one of my teeth cracked while I was there. Um, and then half my tooth ended up falling out a bit down on it, cracked another tooth. Half that tooth ended up falling out. I've, I've had some issues. Okay. <laughs> I'm not trying to make anybody feel sorry for me. I'm trying to, it's just teeth. I'm trying to give you context. Okay. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but dealing with teeth is severely expensive. And with my kids, uh, one in college now, another one about to go off to college, I, I've just put off fully dealing with the problem in my mouth for various reasons. And it finally came to a head. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I sat down with a phenomenal dentist, a literal angel in a dentist coat, uh, sat down and we put together a plan to take care of the problems. But the burden I have for our time together today, these four words, deal with your trash. It's time to deal with your trash. And here's the, the verse the Lord reminded me of and gave me a burden for uh, that paints a wonderful picture. To give you context before I read you Joshua 3 verse 5, this is uh, after Egypt and the wilderness, but just before stepping into the land of the promise. And God says to Joshua to tell the people to purify themselves. So in verse 5 of Joshua 3, Joshua tells the people, purify yourselves. And then he says, why? For tomorrow. The Lord will do great wonders among you. With all of my heart, I believe what God is saying to us, not just to you and me, to the body, something wonderful is coming. I also believe there's difficulty coming more than we've experienced so far, but something wonderful is coming. Is coming. Something holy is coming. Something supernatural is coming. Something miraculous is coming. And God is asking us to play a role in it. We're not just talking about, you know, getting promotions. This isn't about promotions. This is about seeing a move of God on the earth, the likes of which humanity has not seen heretofore. And I believe God desires us to play a role in this mighty move of God. And I believe God is saying to you and to me the same thing he was saying through Joshua to the people of Israel that day. Before these great wonders happen, something must take place. You must purify yourselves. And I don't, I don't want to get on a soapbox, uh, but, it, but it appears, and I am not perfect. I am awful, awful. My righteousness is like rags before the one who laid his life down for me. But I'll say, watching the body of Christ here over the last 20, 25 years, um, it's, it's been an interesting time to grow up in the church, kind of this mega church movement where ministries and churches uh, were exploding. And at the same time, sin was running more and more rampant privately. Please hear my heart. And I know this could make me a target. I'm not saying I'm perfect at all. I'm not. I am in desperate need of a savior. But what I'm saying is this little boy has been watching and and. I just think things got a little too messy. And that's why I feel this burden that God is saying, purify yourselves. Something holy is about to go down. 
first you must purify yourselves. And we're going to talk about essentially unrepentant, unconfessed sin. Now I know some of us, when we talk about sin and an unconfessed sin and unrepentant sin, we kind of go, oh, no, I'm good, Press. Like, I'm good. Let me tell you what I've learned after 32 years of walking, endeavoring to walk in close fellowship with the God of the universe. The closer you get to him, the more amplified the smallest of sins are to you. I am a man of unclean lips. The closer you get to him in his tangible presence, the more aware you are of your sin. And so here's what I would say. If if your first response when I say, we're talking about unconfessed and unrepentant sin, oh no, I'm good. I've, I've taken care of everything. I submit to you. Be really, really careful how you enter this conversation because I think there are three typical responses that are not good. Three bad responses when the Holy Spirit confronts us about our sin. Here's the first one. We're in denial. Our response is, I didn't do that. I'm not doing that. That's not me. I didn't do that. It's never good when our first response to the Holy Spirit, when he confronts us with our sin, in sin, it's never good when it's in denial. Second bad response is indifference. Indifference kind of talks like this. When the Holy Spirit comes and says, Now, Preston, we've got to address this sin right here. Indifference talks like this. Well, I mean, nobody is perfect. I mean, Jesus was the only one who was perfect. Listen, when I was living through past sinful seasons, no matter how big the sin was, it's amazing how the enemy gets you to buy this lie. Oh, well, I mean, nobody is perfect. That's indifference. That's spiritual apathy as it relates to my unrepentant sin. Then here's the third bad response when the Holy Spirit confronts us about our sin. In defense. When we respond, in defense. Well, I did it because this is what ungodly excuses sound like. When he confronts us, we respond in defense. Here's what I would say. Let's all endeavor to enter this conversation as ones knowing we've transgressed. We have sinned against God. Not only have we sinned against God in the past, we've sinned against God in the last seven days. Not only have we sinned against God in the last seven days, we've sinned against God in the last 24 hours. Not only have we sinned against God in the last 24 hours, we've sinned against God in the last 60 minutes. Not only have we sinned against God in the last 60 minutes, some of us have sinned against God in the last 60 seconds. Maybe it was a lie. Maybe it was pride. I'm not trying to rain on our parade, but I am trying to make room for the unbridled rain of heaven, which I believe is coming, but we must first purify ourselves before he does the mighty works among us and through us.
So I want to answer three questions in this conversation, okay? And, and some of you, I sensed as the Lord gave me the burden for this conversation, some of you I know are in a really deep and dark place of unrepentant sin, while others of you uh, are in a place where it, it's, it's not a huge um, disqualifying sin, so to speak, but it's a besetting sin you haven't been able to nip in the bud, and it's creating consistent habits that are slowly but surely getting worse. No matter which you are, let's all enter this conversation knowing we are sinners in need of a Savior. And let's celebrate the fact that the God of the universe is saying, I'm going to do something holy and miraculous among you and through you. But first, we purify. Three questions we're going to answer. Here's the first of the three questions. Why do we put repentance off? Why do we put repentance off? Three things I'm going to submit to you. The first is a fear of pain. One of the reasons I think a lot of people stay away from the dentist is a fear of pain. And, and here's, let me, let me just put you at ease. If you have some stuff going on in your mouth that you need to take care of, that's just been getting worse and worse and worse. Before I'd ever been to the dentist, here's how I thought it went. I didn't know that they gave you a shot to numb you. I just thought they did what they did in your mouth without numbing you. So there was a season I knew I had something wrong, but I, I didn't want to go in because I was afraid of the pain that might be inflicted upon me. But then I went to the dentist the first time. Not only do they give you a shot to numb you, they put this awesome tasting cream in your mouth to numb you before they give you a shot. So this last time she had to give me, she shot me up in like three different spots in my mouth. And every time she was like, okay, you're going to feel a little pinch. I didn't feel jack. She's like, great job, great job. It's almost over. I'm like, I don't even feel anything. You put that minty cream in my mouth. Actually, I think it tastes like raspberries this time. You put that raspberry cream in my mouth. I don't feel a thing. But listen, the fear of pain can make you feel a pain without there even being any pain. Our minds are so powerful. If I confess this, oh, I'm going to feel the pain. The discipline is going to be fierce. I'm going to feel a pain that's going to be awful. Listen, for those of us who have sinned and our sin hurt the people around us, we know the lesson I'm about to teach the rest of us. The most painful pain we fear the most isn't the pain we ourselves feel. It's the pain we feel when we inflict pain upon the people we love most because of our bad choices. Some of us are using this excuse right now not to repent. Lord, you know how badly this is going to hurt my daughter if I confess this? God, do you know how badly this is going to hurt my husband if I confess this? Here's what I would say. The pain you're experiencing from unconfessed, unrepentant sin is so much worse than the pain others are going to feel it, depending on what was done and over what period of time they're going to experience pain but you're going to experience worse pain if you keep this bottled up and keep hiding it 
One of the reasons we choose not to repent is a fear of pain. Here's another reason we choose not to repent of, uh, of our sin, a fear of loss. A fear of loss. We're afraid of what we might lose if we confess our sin and repent of it. And what's, what's one of the biggest things we are afraid to lose? The big opportunity. God, do you know what this will cost me? Like, do you know what I will lose as a result of this? I have a friend who I just met with uh, that he'll remain nameless because at some point he is absolutely coming on the pod because you have to meet him. Just his story is absolutely phenomenal and God's hand is on his life and he's been through some really tough stuff and, and went through it for a really long time refusing to repent and i mean it it the turn that god divinely enabled this man to make it is nothing short of miraculous and and so i'll introduce you to him after the first of the year but uh, we are meeting uh this morning and and uh, we're just talking through how life looks when we don't repent and this guy was um a part of a worldwide ministry. I'll put it like that. Many would say the opportunity of a lifetime. And uh, for a season, he thought, if I, if I confess this, I'm going to lose this opportunity, which is connected to every other opportunity I get. I'll lose everything. Until he got so sick of caring the effects of unrepentant, unconfessed sin, that finally he confessed and then he made the call to the person who stewards this worldwide ministry. If I said the name, you would 1,000% know the name of, of this person in their ministry. This guy, my friend, called and said, I'm benching myself. I'm out. I'm taking at least a year off and I don't know what things will look like after the year is over but I know the Lord's asking me to step down from this incredible opportunity. I was shocked when he told me because most people would try and kind of, okay, Lord, now I'm going to confess and repent, but I shouldn't have to step down from this opportunity, right? No, no, no. Here's, here's what's amazing. Two sides of this coin. Only when you idolize the opportunity, are you willing to do anything to keep the opportunity? But you know, you worship the one true God when you give up the best opportunity you've ever had in your life and don't even see it as a sacrifice. But this is what we do. We're afraid of what we will lose if we confess and repent. And I'm telling you, the enemy talks about the loss. Let me just say this. If you find yourself in this situation, right now, Preston, I, I can't confess this. I can't repent of this. I can't stop this because if I did confess it, I'd lose. I'm never going to get an opportunity like this ever again in my life. Okay, number one, you're making the opportunity bigger than your God. You'll have to answer why. But here's what I would say. There's opportunities and then there's anointing. I'd rather lose an opportunity for a year 
and keep the anointing for a lifetime, then keep the opportunity for a year and lose the anointing forever. Never, ever forget what scripture says. The giftings and callings of God are what? Irrevocable. They're irrevocable. This this is literally Romans chapter 11, verse 29 that teaches us. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Preston. Here's another way to see that. God is so gracious that when he gives you a gift, let's say to play the guitar, you're, you're just gifted every time you pick up the guitar. When he gives you a gift to do that, he's not taking it away. He gave it to you as a gift. But if you are one of his children, most likely from time to time, you have sensed the oil of heaven on you as you use or steward the gift he gave you. Here's what you have to remember. As we talk about the fear of loss, there is something far worse that you can lose than an opportunity or even the gift. It's the oil. The gift might be yours, but the oil is his. Scripture does not say the oil of heaven is irrevocable. That once he gives it to you, you have forever. No, 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 no. Just ask Saul. Saul was anointed king. And David was anointed while Saul was still sitting on the throne. Here's another way to say it. The moment David was anointed to one day become king, Saul immediately stopped experiencing the oil of heaven to be king. I know you're afraid to lose the opportunity. You need to be more afraid of losing the oil, the anointing. Better to lose an opportunity for a year and keep access to the anointing for a lifetime than to keep the opportunity for a year and lose the oil of heaven forever. But one of the reasons we choose not to repent is a fear of loss. Here's the third reason I want to submit to you why we choose not to repent, a fear of expense. And this is different than loss. Loss, I lose something. Expense is what the loss will cost me. One of the biggest lies I believe the enemy tells us when we're living in unrepentant sin is this. If you repent, it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. Not only will you lose this, this, and this, but if you try and get any of that back, you can't even wrap your mind around what it's going to cost you. The cost is just too great. Here's what I believe God says which is the exact opposite of what Satan says. Not repenting is going to cost you everything. (laughs) You can't afford, I can't afford not to repent. Not repenting costs me far more than repenting ever will. Yet the enemy loves to lie and say, oh, Preston, the price you're going to have to pay if you repent of this, you don't want to know the number. You don't want to know the period of time. It's going to cost you way more than you want to pay. You know what's interesting to me? And if you have a Bible, 
You can turn to Jonah 3 if you want, because I want to read this to you. Such a fascinating um, understanding. This gives us such a fascinating understanding and a greater understanding of who God is and how God rolls. You remember, I'll just give you kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of the story of Jonah. God says to Jonah, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim to the city, I'm going to destroy it because of their wickedness. And Jonah goes, no, 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 I'm doing that. And so he gets on a ship and goes in the opposite direction, hoping to get to Tarshish. And the storm comes and he gets kicked out of the boat, ends up in the belly of the whale. But why did Jonah run in the opposite direction of, of the direction God asked him to run? Because Jonah said, God, I know. I know that if I tell the people that if they repent, if I start by saying you're going to destroy the city, but if they repent, you will not destroy the city. I know what they're going to do. They're going to repent. I know how you are. You're going to forgive them. I don't want to go tell them you're going to destroy the city because they'll turn and then you'll forgive them as they repent. And later in the book of Jonah, Jonah says to God, I would rather die than be wrong. I would rather die than what I prophesy not come to pass. Okay, lots in that. But what fascinates me, I want to read you this. Jonah finally relents. He goes to Nineveh. And verse 4, listen to how he shows up to the city and listen to how these evil, wicked people in Nineveh respond. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. Already a big thing. He took a step down from the seat of power took off his royal robes that identified him as the man in the kingdom. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the entire city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways, repentance, and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Watch verse 10. This is mind-blowing to me. And this is our God in action. The city of Nineveh deserved to be destroyed. Now they, they confess and repent. Watch how God responds in verse 10. When God saw what they had done, and how they had put a stop to their evil ways. God changed his mind. Talk about a theological mystery right there. God changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Preston, it's going to cost you everything if you repent. Look at how God responded. He had threatened to take away everything from them. 
but he relented because of their repentance. Truly, the only person's sin actually cost everything was the one who paid it all for my sin. Repentance doesn't cost me everything. My repentance costs Jesus everything. Because the only way my sin could truly be dealt with once and forever was if he shed his blood for my sin so that when I repented and turned from my ways, I could experience the unbridled forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. But one of the big reasons why we refuse to repent is the fear of the expense, not just the fear of the loss. Here's the second question. What happens when we put repentance off? So uh, this really comes from what I've learned uh, putting off taking care of my teeth. I think, um, because I didn't tell the whole story, I went to uh, another dentist um, just before COVID and the experience was even worse. It was, it was just, it was a nightmare. And um, so I put it off for a couple of years and had multiple excuses. And I learned some things by putting off what I knew needed to be done. What happens when we put repentance off? First, things get naggingly distracting. Let's talk about my teeth for a second. I communicate for a living. You know what an idiot you have to be to convince yourself that as someone who communicates for a living, problems in your mouth wouldn't create a problem in your life? <laughs> You're so stupid. Apart from God, the person you are speaking with right now truly is. I legitimately thought, ah, it's just a little problem in my mouth. No one can see it. Isn't this the way we talk about sin? It's not that big of a deal. It's not, it's not going to stop me from anything. Know what I learned? It was, it was nagging. Scripture actually even talks about a nagging tooth. It was a nagging pain that got worse and worse and worse. But it was very distracting. And here's what I mean. I'd be in the middle of a moment in a sermon. And my mouth would move in just a certain way in this tooth that I haven't yet had extracted that's only half there now. And it's completely what they call necrotic. It's dead because I let it go so long. So instead of just creating a crown, if I just would have dealt with it early on, I have to have it completely extracted and put in a fake tooth. Uh, it, it's about four times as expensive, if not more. Huh. But... It, it, at, the, at the very least, the problem in my mouth started creating distractions for me while on the job. This is the way sin is. Small sins can start creating major distractions. At first, it wasn't a major distraction. It was just a minor distraction. But over time, there were moments I would feel a shooting pain in my mouth and I'd get so distracted during the sermon that I'd have to kind of reset. And I wouldn't say anything. 
But I mean, I, I, it, it jolted me. It threw me for a sec. And truthfully, didn't get my focus back until the pain went away. And it would be a shooting pain that would come and go. This, I, I feel like I got to experience some of this so that we could all be reminded of just how dangerous sinful distractions can be. Small sins can start creating major distractions. Let me say it like this. Today's distraction can lead to tomorrow's destruction. That's just a common sense principle. If you drove down the highway today and started looking at something on the side of the road, going down the highway like this, you're going to crash. And depending on the severity of the crash, today's distraction could turn into death tomorrow. Where sin is allowed, sin slowly spreads. Satan is so subtle because the speed at which he moves sometimes as it relates to our sin is so subtly slow. Here's one of the scariest parts of unrepentant sin. I want you to see this picture. Okay? When I know that I am living in sin, okay? this, this is designed to scare some of you in a godly way that leads to repentance. God wasn't displeased when godly sorrow led to repentance. Yes, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, but it's also awareness. When we become aware of our sin and its results, sometimes that leads us to repentance too. I want you to get this picture of what life is like to live in unrepentant sin. You know what you're doing is wrong, but you, you hide it. You don't tell anybody about it. And it keeps getting worse. Here's what will scare you. As long as you keep the door open to that sin, Satan doesn't even have to knock. He can enter whenever he wants. I want you to just imagine in your home, if you left the front door open 24-7 and thieves could just come in anytime they want, Let's just say your neighborhood was known for crime. Would you be somebody who would leave the front door, not just unlocked, but wide open? Of course you wouldn't. Preston, how stupid would I be if I left the front door open where thieves could come in and destroy? Homie, what do you think he is? He being Satan. He is the one who's trying to kill, steal, and destroy. Preston, I would never leave the door unlocked, let alone open if I lived in a dangerous neighborhood. Yet, many of us choose to live in unrepentant sin. And it's the equivalent of being in a dangerous neighborhood with the door wide open. He comes in weaponized anytime he wants. He doesn't even have to knock with temptation anymore. Because we are too busy sleeping with the sin. I'm telling you, I, I've lived through this. This is a scary thing. Scary. As long as you keep the door open, living in unrepentant sin, Satan can just come and go. God's enemies can just come and go anytime they want and wreak havoc in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in your relationships. 
Repentance restricts the enemy's access. Unrepentant sin doesn't just open the door. It rolls out the red carpet for God's number one enemy to come and wreak havoc in me as well as through me. Second thing, when we talk about what happens when we choose not to repent, when we put repentance off, second thing, things get miserable. This is Psalm 32, verse 3. Remember what King David said? The whole Bathsheba list of sins. He tried to hide it. He tried to hide it for like seven months until God called him out through the prophet Nathan. But remember what David says? I try to remind myself of this every day of my life because some of you might be like, Preston, it seems like you use this verse. He's, oh yeah, no, 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 I do. And I use it with myself way more than I ever use it with you. Because I remember what it was like to live with unconfessed, unrepentant sin. God goes on record using King David when he learned what he learned, living through six to seven months of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Psalm 32, verse 3, is what he learned. When I refuse to confess my sin, my whole body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Another way to say it, I was miserable God, can I just tell you something? Something sweet that might surprise you about our God? It's the kindness of God to make me miserable in my unconfessed sin. Do you know how terrible of a father he would be if he let me be happy forever in my sin? ridiculous to even think about it is his kindness that has made me miserable the fact that he makes me miserable is his kindness in action every time i've been living in an unconfessed sin when i think through like king david did seasons where i was in unrepentant sin um here, here's how it kind of goes at first you think you're getting away with it. And you think, because God doesn't strike you with lightning, that it's just not that big of a deal. And once we convince ourselves that that particular sin isn't that big of a deal, it opens the door to the next level of sin, which is even worse. And we tell ourselves, ah, no big deal. God hasn't struck me, so it's okay. Here's what I've learned. While at first it may seem like you're getting away with it because of his kindness, it's going to feel worse and worse and worse. And the hit you felt you got the first time you chose that sin, you don't get the same hit the 50th time you choose to walk out that sin and you become more miserable. It's harder to sleep. You start constantly looking over your shoulders to see if anybody saw you the same way Moses did after he murdered someone. And you're exhausted, miserable. David says, I tried the whole hiding my sin thing. I tried the whole, I refuse to confess my sin thing. 
here's what it led to. I groaned all day long. My body wasted away. It nearly killed me. You might hear that verse and go, that's just mean, God. No, no, no. That's just kind of God. Let me say it like this. Love turns the heat up until you tap out. I've experienced this multiple times and Lord willing, the older I get, I don't want to have to experience this, but I am not perfect. And so I'm, I'm going to sin. Lord willing, I don't choose to live in it for any amount of time. But I'll tell you, I know I won't be surprised if I choose to live in unrepentant sin when he just turns the heat up and up and up and up and up because he's taught me from the front row. Love will turn the heat up until you choose to tap out, Preston. It's my kindness that turns the heat up and leads you to repentance. I don't want you to live like this. The effects of carrying unrepentant sin. Preston, they're not worth it. They're dangerous. I didn't create you to live like this. I'm going to turn that heat up until you tap out. Then here's um, another inevitability um, that I've already kind of touched on. Uh, what happens when we put repentance off? Things only get more expensive. I learned this the hard way. What should have cost less than $1,000, probably, originally, if I just would have dealt with it, turned into a couple thousand dollars for a crown, but I didn't do that, which led to a dead tooth, which now I got to get yanked then put in a post and a fake tooth, I'm looking at at least eight Gs. At least. I put it off. And you know what's funny? You want to know my real why? Put it off because I knew there was going to be expense and I didn't want my family to feel the weight of it. I didn't want my kids to be negatively impacted by one of my stupid teeth. And I thought I was doing the right thing by saving us money from doing what I know and knew needed to be done. You know what it created? My heart to save only created more expense. And now I got I to gotta spread it out. So much work needs to be done. I got to spread it out. To pay for it. Listen. Choosing not to repent of our sin. Creates. A really big bill. It's not worth whatever relief you think you're getting. By putting off. The punishment. The longer you put off obedience. The more expensive your disobedience gets. A problem only becomes a catastrophe when you let it linger. What's the ultimate price? 
that we can pay for not repenting? Here's my answer. A fall. That's the ultimate. And we see this from time to time. Uh, I believe God gives mercy and grace. And, and it's his grace that gives us another chance and another chance to step up and repent. And then we get to that line that he sets. And unfortunately, when we choose not to repent, which one definition means to turn in the opposite direction, 180 degree turn. When we get to that line and we don't repent, here's what happens. We walk off a cliff. We call it the fall. A moral failure, whatever you want to call it, what it really is, it's a fall. And here's what I've noticed about huge, life-altering falls off the ledge. The path to a huge fall typically involves a thousand small stumbles. You don't jump your way to a fall. Typically, you stumble your way to a fall. And here's how I see it. Every time I stumble, God is desiring for me to allow myself to be picked up by him. But the only way to be rescued is to repent. I don't know where you're at in this journey, but if you're to a place with the sin, what, no matter how big, maybe for you it's lying. Maybe for you it's gossip. Maybe for you it, it's covetousness. Maybe for you it, it's a sexual sin. Maybe for you it's alcoholism, excess. I, I don't know where you're at and it, it doesn't really matter to me what the sin is. What really matters to me is this. Are you to a place where you're ready to deal with your trash? I don't mean that sin that we, we just quickly, rep I'm talking about that one you've been stuffing down and either hiding or continuously walking in without confession or repentance. Are you ready to deal with your trash? If you are, let's get to the third question. What's the best way to deal with my trash? A couple of things. This one's kind of a silly one, but a serious one. First, you got to go Popeye on this thing. You got to go Popeye. We kind of talked a little bit about this principle in the pride episode. Um, and so, I, but I want you to understand this. It was not just about pride. This is about sin. I, I say Popeye. You got to go Popeye on this thing. I, you're probably, many of you are too young to even remember or know what Popeye, the cartoon is or was. Uh, but Popeye had this saying, he would get picked on uh, by the bully uh, time and time again, and he would just wear it. I mean, it just the, the bully, I think his name was Brutus, was, was unrelenting. And finally, Popeye, the weaker one, would say these words before he would pop open the can of spinach and go full-on muscle Popeye mode. He would say, that's all I can stands because I can't stands no mo." 
Here's the spiritual principle. You must get so fed up with this sin that you are inarguably motivated to deal with it until it's been fully dealt with. You got to be so disgusted and sick of this sin that no one could talk you out of confession and repentance. That's godly motivation to deal with it until it's been fully dealt with. I don't mean to dabble. I mean to fully deal with it. You got to become disgusted. I mean sickened by what you've done, what you've been doing, its impact on those you love, and more than anything, the way it's grieved your heavenly father. Here's one of the reasons we got to go Popeye. Because the more appalled you are by your sin, the more passionate your appeal to your Savior. Isn't it amazing when we get to, oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Our first reach is for the Savior, who alone can save us. But listen, if, if you're not disgusted by your sin, it's not uncommon to get to a place where you're, you're not even fully convinced you need a Savior. My sin is disgusting. My sin killed Jesus. I want to show you what this kind of Popeye-level disgust looks like in a human. You remember Peter? Uh, the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and leading to his crucifixion. Do you remember Peter, and this was foretold, Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the, the rooster even crows. It takes place, the rooster crows, and let me show you what happens in Luke 22, verse 61. At that moment, the Lord, Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. I want you to imagine this. Just, just imagine this turn right here. You just denied him three times. And in that garden, Jesus looks and turns at you. Get this picture. Suddenly, the last words flash through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. But watch verse 62. Watch Peter's response. Real time. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. He couldn't handle what he'd just done. This is real time repentance. He runs. Weeping bitterly in disgust. As well as shame. His disgust was so strong, it led to a shame that caused him to hide. Amazingly, Jesus made sure he didn't stay hidden in shame. That's just how Jesus rolls. But I love this moment, and it reminds me constantly. Something is off with me if I don't respond to my sin the way Peter responded to his. So here's my question to you. When was the last time you were grieved 
by this unrepentant sin. Preston, I cry about it every day. No, I don't just mean cry about it. I mean cry about it so much you run away from it. There was an episode a while back with Timmy uh, where there was a moment. And listen, I know how some of y'all roll. And he was telling a story. Um, I, if I remember right, it was right after he had just gotten saved. And he went over to a woman's house and he felt the Holy Spirit saying the whole time, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. He went, stepped into sin, and immediately after he committed the sin, was weeping bitterly. Now, I know for a fact that some of you, when you heard him tell that story, were like, I can't believe right after he got, listen, we're all sinners in need of a savior. I'm not justifying sin. But what I'm trying to say is, Timmy responded to his sin the same way Peter did. Timmy looked like an idiot weeping on the side of that bed when that woman came back into the room. Something is off with me until I weep over my sin the same way the Father weeps over my sin and is grieved by my sin. Something is off with me until I see my sin the same way Peter saw his. You got to get disgusted. If you're going to not just do this whole, I'm so sorry, Lord, go back to it. I'm so sorry, Lord, go back to it. I'm so sorry, God, I know it's wrong, go back to it. If you're going to end that stupid little cycle that Satan tries to keep us in of constant unrepentant sin, if you want to leave that merry-go-round, you're going to have to get disgusted by what you've been doing in that sinful cycle. And Peter's a wonderful picture. You got to get sick of it before you're truly willing to do anything about it. Second, and I know this seems obvious to some of us, but listen, if we're sitting down at coffee right now, this, this is exactly how I'd be talking to you. I get, I get DMs every once in a while and people are like, what would mentoring, uh, being mentored by you look like? And I literally have learned just to say, like the leader, Scott, this is the way I've been doing it for over two decades. Like if we were sitting down, I wouldn't just assume, even though I know pretty much that you know one of the things we have to do to deal with our trash is to confess our sin. But let me say it like this. If you're going to deal with your trash, we need to confess our sin. You need to confess your sin before God and to man. Confess it before the Lord, but also to man. Psalm 38, 18. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. This is King David. So notice being troubled by my sin leads to, I confess my iniquity. He's saying, I confess my iniquity because I'm so troubled by what I did. He said, this is exactly what we're talking about. You got to get troubled by it first. Then it leads to confession. What does James chapter five say about confessing our sins? James 5, 16, confess your sins one to another. That's the way I memorized it. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. Here's the picture of unrepentant sin. Your sin will remain your sickness 
until your confession. How long do you want to stay sick? Well, Preston, if I confess this, they're not going to be impressed by me anymore. Heads up, none of us have ever been as impressed as you think. Let me put it on me. Nobody was ever as impressed with me as I thought or wanted them to be impressed with me. That's part of the lie of the enemy. Oh, Preston, no one will be impressed with you if you confess this from the stage. If you confess that you preached a sermon God didn't tell you to preach and that's why it wasn't anointed, they'll never be impressed with you as a preacher. Know what I learned? That was a lie. They were actually more impressed with my confession than they ever would have been with the best sermon. But Satan tries to come and say, oh no, people will never be impressed. You got to just keep this in. Your sin's going to remain your sickness until your point of confession. Confess. Preston, who do I confess to or with? Someone trusted. I'll tell you a rule I've learned the hard way. Never confess to someone you think would ever turn around and use it as a spear against you. I don't confess to all my friends. I love my friends. I have a very small group of men I trust. Now, as it comes to confession, I don't confess my sin to women because that can cross lines. So I have a small group of men that if I'm going to confess unrepentant sin and I want to turn from it, these are men I trust who I know no matter what. They will never stab me with the sins of my past. How do you know you have somebody like that? They don't talk about the past. Ever been around somebody who was like, hey, do you ever think about that thing you did back then? Like, is there ever a day where you're just sitting around and you just kind of remember? Be very, very careful with someone like that. And most certainly never confess your sins to someone like that. Find people you can trust. But until you confess, expect sickness. Your sin's going to remain your sickness until your confession. And then here's one more thing, and this is a little bit of a twist, and I, I want to kind of interplay a little bit between my tooth problem and our sin problem. If you're going to deal with your trash, you got to ask for help. One of the things I love about James 5 is, is it tells us we don't just confess to God. We confess to man. I love that because it reminds us we have to ask for help. Because even to confess to somebody, I have to say, hey, can I get some time? I, I need to talk about some stuff. And there's some stuff I've been stuck in and, and I just, I've got to confess. And I want to confess before God, but I want to confess to you. That involves asking for help. But there's a greater measure of that. You don't create a new lifestyle. Repentance is a completely new turn away from the old. You don't create a new lifestyle by holding on to old and ignorant habits. I, I really learned this 
in my experience with this dentist. This dentist is phenomenal. If you're in the Valley anywhere and you need a phenomenal dentist, I'm not going to publicly plug and get into all that, but I have no problem passing on the name of someone who has taken and is taking very good care of me. But one of the things this dentist did that no other dentist has done with me is he asked questions. And some of the questions were like these. He said, Preston, do you eat a lot of sugar? I said, no. Like, I don't drink sugar at all. My protein shakes have almost no sugar. I only drink water, no uh, sodas, and really don't drink juices because of all the sugar in them. Like, I don't, and, and I have dessert every once in a while, but I do not eat a lot of sugar. He goes, do you eat a lot of mints? And I go, my job is to communicate. Like I have mints in my mouth several days a week and on the weekends, like for hours, <laughs> I'm popping lifesavers. And he said, are they sugar-free? I said, no, I'm sure they're not. He said, here's the thing. You have, uh, he said, some people have dry mouth. You have a more moist mouth, which means you have a very ripe environment for bacteria. And when you suck on, he goes, I bet you don't chew on mints. You suck on them. And I started laughing. And I, I said, yeah, I, I just suck on them to try and keep the, the good smell close. And he said, Preston, having sugar on your teeth for prolonged periods of time, wears down the enamel of your teeth and actually weakens them. He said, you have really strong teeth. That's why you went so many years without a cavity. But you've weakened your teeth. No one ever told me that. No one ever told me that I was making things worse because I was putting sugary mints in my mouth. Then he goes, do you drink a lot of carbonated water? Like here I was thinking, I don't drink carbonated drinks. I don't drink sugary carbonated drinks. He goes, do you drink carbonated water? I said, uh, like six to eight a day. He starts laughing and he said, I, I knew it. And I said, how could you tell? He said, because the pH in your mouth is off. And he starts going through the scientific explanation. Here's my point. I was ignorant of all of this stuff. I was ignorant that there were things I was doing that were harming my mouth, but also literally taking away my ability to have a healthy mouth. I didn't even know. I needed help from an expert. I'm not saying pastors or therapists are experts. I believe anybody used by God can serve as a wise expert. We need help. We just sometimes need somebody to tell us, hey, Preston, these habits right here that you've had in the past are damaging you. But you don't even know it because you're ignorant of it. That's why God sent me to help you remove these things and replace them with these things. Many of us have had mentors who served as experts, wise sages in our lives who said, hey, this is leading to a lack of health in your life. Now that you've repented, let's get this stuff out of the way. But it's never enough just to remove bad things from our lives. We must replace the space that those bad things occupied with godly things. We need help. Don't just assume you can figure this out on your own. I can't tell you how much trouble, future problems that dentist saved me from 
by giving him a measure of expertise I never would have found on my own. Once you've repented, confessed and repented, now you got to go to work to build a life without those sins. I want to read you one more passage as we wrap up. Um, And this is the picture of repentance. Uh, When I was in college, one of my professors taught me that one of the word pictures associated with the biblical word repentance is this, like a bonfire that burns something up in such a way it's impossible to ever revisit it ever again. And with that picture, I believe, is a moment in Solomon's life, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, as he's dedicating the temple, lays out all these sacrifices, God is pleased. And scripture in Second Chronicles 7 verse 1 says, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And watch this next part. So get the picture. Laying a sacrifice, killing what must be killed, laying it on the altar, God is so pleased that the fire of heaven comes and consumes the burnt offerings and the sacrifices on the altar. And watch what happens next. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. I love verse 2 because verse 2 quantifies how much of his presence and its result. The priest couldn't even enter the temple of the Lord, even though it was their job. Because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it so. This is the picture I felt the Lord give me for you. And I know not everybody makes it to the end of an episode. But for those of you who did, I absolutely believe God made sure of it. Because something holy is coming. Something miraculous is about to go down. I'm not saying In the next hour, I'm not saying in the next day, in the next week, in the next month. I'm not saying in the next year. I don't care when. But with all of my heart, I believe God has said, I'm about to do a miraculous work among you. Your responsibility is to purify yourself first. And I think God says, and Preston, as you lay things that must die on my altar, The fire of heaven will fall because I am pleased with your sacrifice. And my response will be my glorious presence will fill your life. And it will be overwhelming to you and everybody else who comes in contact with you. It's not worth hiding our sin. It's not worth not confessing our sin. It's not worth choosing not to repent of our sin. It's about to go down. And I I, I say this all the time. I'm not talking about some kind of raw, raw thing. I'm talking about a glorious responsibility to see God do something miraculous, but also to be used by God for him to do it through us. But he will not do it. Till we get a burden for purification. I want to pray. And I, I want, I've been praying that this would be a holy, holy moment. 
I want you just to close your eyes right where you are. And I want you to go into Peter mode as I pray. I want you to take full view of the sin. I don't mean commit it right now. I mean look back at it. And become so disgusted by it that you're grieved in the same way the Spirit of God is as a result of it. And what leads to repentance, it's that disgust that leads to confession. Would you just take a few moments right now? And I know some of you are weeping bitterly. And it's that deep shoulder shaking, bitter weeping. And it's okay. It's actually better than okay. It's right. Just begin to confess. I hear you screaming. I know you've been living with it for a long time. Get it out. Get it out. Confess it. Don't carry it any longer. Confession is the act of choosing to no longer carry it all by yourself. Give it to God. Just confess it. Don't hide it any longer. The holy happenings of tomorrow are only preceded by today's confession and repentance. Get it all out. Oppressing, he saw all my sin. He didn't need to hear me say it. No, no, no. You need to hear yourself say it. Hearing yourself say it out loud is part of what's going to lead to the bitter weeping. Preston, I mean, it was just some gossip. It's, it's not that big of a deal. I don't, I'm, why would I weep about that? The closer you get to God, the more aware you become of the danger of sin because it creates separation between us and Him. And so the smallest of sins can lead to the biggest of gaps. And so we weep and say, I am a man of unclean lips. It wasn't just gossip. It was an act of rebellion against you, oh God. It was the exact opposite of what you would have done, which means I turned and walked in the opposite direction of you. And after we confess, and some of us are going to need to hit up a trusted friend after this episode is done. But right now, we're going to move from confession to repentance. See, the reason it's so genius to get disgusted by our sin is the more disgusted you are by something, the further away you want to get from that something. 
And so our disgust in our sin is part of what motivates us to get as far away from it as possible. God, we repent. I repent. God, I want nothing to do. Nothing to do with these sins. I want to get as far away from them as I can. Not just because you remove them as far as the east is from the west, but because I repent in such a way that I burn it up so as to never revisit it again. God, as we lay these sins on your altar, may the fire of heaven right now come down, fall fire of heaven, rain down upon that which we have killed because it's been killing us. God, would you burn it up so that even if we wanted to revisit it ever again, we could never find it. May that be your response to our repentance. Now, God, I pray that you would send a host of help of wise sages to help each of them steward this season of their lives. We talk about it all the time. There is a measure of divine preparation that must be taking place in order for us to be entrusted by God to steward the holy happenings that are around the corner. God, would you send a host of helpers? God, we just tell you how grateful we are that we can come to you with our sin, in our sin. And we can lay it at your feet. At the beautifully bloody feet of Jesus. And that all of my sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow, all of my sin has been dealt with by the blood of the cross. Holy Spirit, would you give each of us a greater burden to walk in purity, clean hands, and pure hearts. God, we want a front row seat to the mighty and miraculous works you're going to do next. But we know you've told us. Purity precedes seeing my power unleashed in the earth and through you. So Holy Spirit, would you give us a greater burden for clean hands and a pure heart. And when we stumble, may we immediately confess and repent. May we deal with our trash real time the way Peter started to deal with his. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Amen. Amen. I love you so much. And I, I know sometimes stuff like this is hard to talk about, but I'm so proud of you, especially those of you who have been living in it and up under it for years and years. I'm so proud of you. And if you made a massive leap by turning, not just confessing, but repenting, turning in your heart already as far away as you can get from it, and then building out the life and lifestyle to keep you from ever getting near it ever again, hit me up. I want to be praying over you. And I'm so proud of you. I don't know what's coming next, but I know it's going to take the earth's breath away. And God is looking for a pure remnant who can be trusted with the oil of heaven. But we are sinners in need of a savior. And when we stumble, we must real-time repent. Clean hands and a pure heart. That's in large part what precedes what's coming next. I love you. With all my heart, I want you to be on the front row seeing what God does next. Let's fight for the purity of our hearts. I love you so much. I'll see you next time.